0: Good morning, good morning. This is Valerie Leonard. I just wanna say thank you so much for joining us and I wanna welcome you. As you have been following along, we've been talking about effecting change through policy advocacy. And this is our third session. Um, We've been talking about effecting change through policy advocacy. um, This is our third session. Okay, okay, just one moment. I gotta- I have to clear out, yeah, I had more than one instance open and that was a little bit confusing to me. All right, so again, we are talking about affecting change through policy and advocacy, and this is our third session. We are going to focus on looking at framing your policy questions and then turning those policy questions into successful Advocacy campaigns where you're actually engaging your elected officials to make positive change. Now, before we get started, you know, if you're here, please share your name, where you're from, and let us know any questions that you might have. You can post those in the comments section. And if you've had any experience with policy advocacy, We wanna hear about those. Um, We wanna hear some of the tips that you might have um, for being successful in affecting change at the legislative level, all right? So without further ado, I am going to share my screen and we will get into our presentation. Okay, so we're picking up from where we left off last week, but we're actually going to do a little bit of review. We're going to start off with um, developing policy proposals and then go forward and talk about how you can engage your legislative bodies. All right, so developing effective policy requires three elements. The first one is making sure that you have a sound evidence base and making sure that it comes from solid issue identification, problem analysis and outcomes-based research. If you want to know a little bit more about how that is done, I encourage you to go to YouTube and look at our first two videos on developing effective policy advocacy. You also need to understand and manage the political context if managing it is possible. And this is understanding and knowing how decisions are made informally as well as formally and where the decisions are being made, who's making those decisions. And then you wanna be able to communicate complex issues in a manner that's clear, compelling and inspires action. That is, you need to be able to master the art of talking in sound bites. All right, so the first thing you want to do is clearly define the outcome for the um, issues that you're advocating for. You know, look at what you want to achieve. So you start with the end in mind and you work backwards. And remember, the outcomes are the results, and the best policy options are formulated again, by starting with where you want to be and then working your way backwards. And then you need to ask yourself, given where you want to be, what do you need to happen as a result of your policy alternative? You know, what action or what changes is your, or are your policy um, actions going to lead to? And then what would that look like? You know, what's the vision? You know, once you have, solve the problem what do you expect the community to look like as a result what do you expect to happen in the lives of your people that you're trying to help what do you expect to happen in the lives of everyone who is impacted by the issue it doesn't necessarily have to be your client but you know what happens for the stakeholders the second thing is you want to identify all Possible policy based options for reaching those outcomes so there's a number of ways that you can reach the same outcome and the trick is to make sure that you're. Achieving your outcomes in a manner that is respectful to all of your stakeholders, it is also going to be within the context of your capacity and your organization's ability. All right. And then you ask yourself if nothing is done about the issue, what could happen? So, so what's the risk of things staying the same? Um, Do things get worse in terms of what happens to the people impacted by the problems? Will there be a financial cost to pay? Uh, Does it get better? You know, what, you know, Does nothing happen, right? Is it too difficult to tell? So, you really want to be able to, you know, when you start your campaign, you want to be able to weigh the options, you know, all the pros and cons and run different scenarios. What happens if X changes, if Y changes? What happens if nothing changes? Uh, Where would change be most desirable? You know, what's the low hanging fruit? You know, what's the easiest to change? Are there any other policy areas that have similar issues and how have those been addressed? And what other countries are there? You know, this is for those of you who are watching from other countries. Um, Are there other countries that have similar issues? If you're here in the United States, are there other communities that have similar issues and how they address the issues? If we were to address the issue in this new innovative and creative way you know, something that's not been done before, what would the solutions look like? How much is that going to cost, right? What are those groups which are are most impacted by the problem asking for? And what actions can be taken to address or neutralize the causes of the problem? And you want to have all this stuff figured out before you get in front of the cameras, right? The third thing you want to do is isolate the most viable options. And what's viable to one organization may not necessarily be viable to the next organization. Again, this all depends on your situation. It depends on the people that you have engaged with you, what their values are. Um, It depends on your capacity. So the first standard for viability, you know, taking all those things into account, is good governance so when we talk about governance we're talking about decision making we're talking about risk management we're talking about managing money we're talking about making sure that there's gender equality racial equality oversight and transparency any policy alternative that requires the use of public funds also needs to be addressed for its value for money you know you look at it and you see whether or not this is a good return on taxpayers' money, right? So you need to ask yourself whether the spending, you know, represents a good financial management. And and then the way you can start to do that is look at, you know, how much it costs to implement this, how many people are going to be impacted, look at any savings that might be achieved. And if, in fact, your policy is going to do more good than harm then by all means continue to press forward contemporary standards for good governance also require a sound gender analysis of policy proposals to ensure that there's no inherent bias and again i would also you know make sure that there is diversity and equity and inclusion at all levels not just as it relates to gender as it relates to socioeconomic background, as it relates to race, et cetera. All right. So you want to look at the political lay of the land. And that involves, first of all, looking at the environment, right? So what's the current public opinion about the issue that you are trying to address if there is no public opinion out there and you believe that the change that you want to propose has merit, then it's going to be up to you to make people aware of what the issues are and the alternatives, and then begin to generate a buzz. So, after you get an understanding for what the public opinion is, you know what is the current opinion of the major political actors on the issue. So the people pro and con, you know, they also have. Uh, public profiles right what do people think about the people who are for your issue who are against your issue and is your organization you know depending on you know whether or not your organization is considered a good actor or a bad actor you know look at your own organization's profile and you want to be able to understand how your profile as an organization stacks up with the established players. All right, the next thing you want to look at is supporters. Who is likely to support the policy that you're trying to uh, advance and why? You know, will their support be strong? Will it be weak? And how can you maximize their support? Next thing you want to do is look at who opposes your policy alternative. You know, who's most likely to oppose the policy and why? will their position be strong or will it be weak will it be public will it be kept private what will their arguments be you know so as you think about these policies and before you roll them out you got to think about you know who's going to be for you who's going to be with you but even after you roll them out there may be some opponents that you hadn't thought about and you're going to be able to, you're going to need to be able to respond quickly to address any opposition that you might have. How do you neutralize the arguments? And notice we're trying to neutralize the arguments, but not necessarily neutralize the person, right? You want to focus on issues and not personalities. When we look at stakeholders, you want to look at everybody who is impacted one way or the other. Whether they support the policy or not, how are they going to be impacted? If it's taxpayers, they're going to be on the hook for the money. So you need to understand um, how how much money it's going to cost and how you can make sure that they're on board. When you look at your clients, you know what do your clients need, right? What will happen for them as a result of the policy being put forth? If uh, you're working in the community, how is your community? going to be changed for the better, for the worse, for this policy? What are some of the intended consequences? What are some of the unintended consequences? What degree of change will they have to adjust to as a result of this policy? So for example, in Chicago, we, you know, back in 2013, we had 50 schools to close in the city at once. This has never been done And to this day, we're still living with some of the negative impacts, right? I don't think that our city did a good job of looking at the long-term impact or they didn't care about the long-term negative impact. So whatever policies that you are pushing forth, even though you might think that there are some positive things that happen, you also want to look at some of the negative things that can happen, the long-term consequences. All right, so what is the reaction of stakeholders likely to be? You know, will they be supportive? Will they not be supportive? Um, What will their concerns be? How do you address their concerns? And what information or interaction with you will they need in order to support you? All right, so the next thing we want to look at is the is the clarity of options. You wanna check how well your policy alternatives have been formulated to decide or to even see, you don't really decide whether or not the objectives are clear, but you can read them for yourself and really understand whether or not they're clear and then bounce them by the stakeholders that are working with you. Um, You wanna also make sure not only are your objectives clear, but your action points are compelling you want to make sure that the language is clear, and especially when you're dealing with issues that are too complex to really communicate in sound bites. You want to be able to really break those down into the simplest terms as possible so that anybody can follow you. And a good rule of thumb is to be able to communicate really at the third grade level. If a third grader can understand what it is you're saying, then you have a pretty good idea that you are speaking in a way that is clear for the masses the policy options also have to be specific so that the decision makers know exactly what they're being asked to do and advocates can hold them accountable for progress so for yourself begin before you even begin to engage people you need to develop a scorecard and some way of tracking your progress so that you can stay on track. The next thing you wanna do is look at where the decisions are made, right? So you wanna look at where the decisions are made, who makes those decisions, right? And so that will be on spending and investment. You know, again, who makes those decisions in what forums? the policy regulations, the implementation and enforcement, as well as public opinion, who influences public opinion, who decides what messages are going out, Um, who decides how to change the perception? And how are you going to change those perceptions? The next thing you want to know is how decisions are made. So there are Formal mechanisms and their informal mechanisms. So when we talk about those formal mechanisms for decision making, we're talking about those public forums that are required by law or they're documented in your organization's policy. So, for example, committee hearings. um, Meetings or reporting processes and these could be by the public body or even within your internal organization. So it's important to know who all the decision makers are internally as well as externally with those people that you are trying to influence. Um, You look at legislative debates and votes. You look at ministerial decrees. And when we're talking about ministerial decrees, in this instance, we're talking about, you know, Organizational department heads. And when we say organizational, we're talking about public agencies, government agencies, um, executive bylaws and regulations. That could be your bylaws and regulations, as well as the bylaws and regulations of the people that you're trying to influence, um, because it's really important to make sure that the people that you're trying to influence are actually operating within the boundaries of their own bylaws or within the boundaries of the law. You also want to you know, look at things like audit and risk and oversight reporting processes, board meetings, consultation processes, etc. Any process that will impact your policy or some policy that is already in existence, you want to understand you know, who can make those decisions and how and where that might occur. The next way decisions are made are on an informal basis. So those are those activities and procedures that occur outside the formal process and we just listed those. And these often happen at the same time. They're not happening as a requirement of the law or official policy, but they still have an impact, right? So this could be community meetings, private meetings. Uh, We like to say those meetings in the smoke-filled rooms. Um, It could happen at a legislative drafting session. It could happen at a ministerial meeting. And again, when we say ministerial, we're talking about an agency, a public agency, Um, the local cultural equivalent of the golf course and places decision makers meet socially, right? So here is an example of a legislative process. This is the House of Commons in England. This is their process. And if you're over in England, or you know, regardless of where you are, and if you're trying to influence a law, it's really important for you to understand at what stages you can have some influence. So you need to understand how the process works, where you can interject your own organization or a coalition's influence, right? So you map out the process, you have to understand the rules of engagement and know the points where you can engage, all right? So I'm not gonna go into detail about this process because. Uh, this process is happening in England, but you know this gives you a really good sense. Now, for those of us, most of us are here in the United States, I have uh, shared with you a map of the process, you know for Congress. Um, how do ideas become law? It all starts with an idea, right? So you need to introduce your idea, either to your congressperson or to your senator, and ideally to both. Um, If they both buy into it, then they can get the ball rolling at two levels. You'll have um, someone at the congressional level sponsoring your policy solution um, to make it law, and then you'll have someone at the Senate level. So the way this diagram works, and I know it's small, and I'm going to expand it, But just know that the areas in red, those uh, represent the Senate processes. And those Senate processes have a corresponding or a mirroring or the same process, we'll say the same process going on at the House level. So the House is in blue, the Senate is in red, right? And then they come together and they, Have a bill and they present it to the president. So I'm going to make this a little bit bigger so that you can see it. Um, All right. So the first thing happens is, you know, after you introduce your idea, it gets drafted and then it gets introduced and a clerk assigns it to a member, right? Um, Then the member refers it to committee and a subcommittee. There is a committee hearing and it could get tabled or it could go forward. And then you have a subcommittee and full committee markup. And then it gets reported out and then it gets calendared and then there is a floor reading debate and amendment. It goes to a full vote. And then we have the engrossed bill. And what the engrossed bill is, is the recent, most recent bill that takes into account all of the changes that were made as a result of all of that debate. And then it goes to a conference committee and that's voted on by both houses, right? So. Assuming that it gets passed by both houses, then you have an enroll bill. And that enroll bill is the result of all the discussions that have happened at the Senate level, all the discussions that have happened at the House level, right? And then once it goes to the president, he has a choice. He can either sign it and it becomes law, or he can veto it. Right. And then if he vetoes it, if Congress wants it that bad, they could put it to a vote. If they get two-thirds of the vote, then they can override the veto and it becomes law. And your state legislative processes work very similarly. Your city processes work similarly. Um, it's up to you to really understand, you know, the level at which you're engaging. It could be the federal, state, county, city, um, school board, whatever the level is that you're engaging in, you need to be able to map out the process of how bills or ideas become law or how ideas become policy. And then look at ways that you can interject your influence at different points. All right, so if there are any questions or comments, please feel free to post them in the chat room. All right, so obviously you're gonna to need to know the players that can impact your policy, right? So decision makers, they're the people with the power and authority to approve or implement the change that is the focus of your policy advocacy effort. So not only do you need to know the lawmakers, Right. You need to know the people at the various departments who are going to take the law, turn it into policy and programs. All right. So without the involvement and support of these individuals and possibly the organizations they lead as well, the objectives of your campaign uh, will not be achieved. All right. So you want to look at the folks in the private sector. You want to look at the folks in the public sector as well as those in civil society. So the private sector that could include corporations or businesses, individuals, um, including business leaders, financial institutions, business or trade associations, or any private entity, right? Um, Public sector. Government ministers, so these, when we say ministers, we're talking about heads of um, different departments. So it could be the head of education, right? Um, The committee heads or members. So when we talk about committee heads or members, those could be um, ad hoc task forces. Those could be committees who are um, formed by say your city council. So um, it could be regional assembly members. So general assembly, it could be your county board, city council, your local government elected officials, your local government public officials who are not necessarily elected, but appointed, anybody who's gonna have some influence in the public sector, you wanna list those out. Your civil society are people, you know, your churches, your church leaders, your pastors, community leaders, student or youth leaders, civil society leaders. So those would be people who are running nonprofit organizations, folks who are running block clubs, et cetera. And then this worksheet helps you to analyze how decision makers can specifically impact your campaign. Now, if you are a member of our community, and when I say our community, I'm talking about the nonprofit Utopia community, we have a workbook that will have these questions and spaces for you to answer these questions. So you might wanna develop a chart that will have things like you know, the name of the stakeholder. All right, why are they critical to the campaign? What's their position or organization? Are they in a private sector? Are they in the public sector? Do they belong to civil society or the nonprofit sector? And why are they critical to the campaign? Um, and again, what's their position or organization and the sector? So you continue to do that. You, you do that for every player you know over and over again until you don't have any more names right and then you want to do a power analysis right and this is one way of doing it right drawing a power map to help you prioritize your engagement efforts and the way this works out right you have two columns um Positive and negative. You know, is their influence positive or is it negative? And then you have two roles the strength of their influence. Is their influence strong or is it weak? All right, so you really want to focus your efforts, the most of your efforts, in that box where you both have strong influence and positive influence. You don't want to be in those areas where you have negative influence. You know, the strength of your influence is negative and the direction, you know, the momentum is negative. All right, so here is an example, right? So this map was developed by a coalition of business owners in England we are trying to persuade decision makers to reduce the taxes and rates charged to medium and small businesses in one of the local cities. And this map assesses the response of the decision makers to an advocacy issue campaign by assigning quadrants based on the strength and direction of influence. And when we talk talk about direction, we're talking about whether or not you have momentum, you know, a strong push or are you kind of lagging in momentum? So what they did after charting um, the players on this grid, they found that, you know, the head of the Chamber of Commerce both had strong influence and the direction was positive. So there's positive momentum there, right? and then they noticed too that when they looked at strong influence but also a strong they could be a strong um, opponent they put this person or people in the negative column but they also had strong influence so you'll see them um, in the second the, the top right quadrant so you had the head of the local council he had strong influence, but was against the proposal. You had the chief financial officer of the local council, and the trade union leaders were against this, right? Um, the folks that were in their corner, but they had weak influence, but they had very you know positive direction, the head of the National Investment Authority and the head of the leading party in opposition, right? So they did this um, analysis before they went out. And again, as I said before, you want to focus your efforts on areas where there's strong um, influence and positive direction of influence. So at this point, you, you know, in that quadrant you want to recruit for assistance and you want to keep people involved and engaged in the campaign in those areas where there is a strong influence, but a negative direction, you know, the people are opposing you, you want to engage them constantly and actively seek to influence their opinions, try to win them over to your side and then if you can't win them over to your side you want to at least neutralize their position again you want to neutralize the position and not the person you're not trying to make personal attacks Um, then when we look at those areas of weak influence but they're in our corner they're positive if you have enough time you want to be able to persuade them to become A stronger influence and influence others and become more active. If they're still not interested, you want to make sure that you keep them informed of what it is that you're doing. You want to monitor their involvement with the issue with minimum effort. Again, you're going to spend most of your time in working with those people who support you and they're actively engaged. And then people who oppose you and their influence is weak, you want to keep them informed. And then you also, you know, want to you know keep your ear to the ground. You're not focusing on them, but you still want to kind of keep your ear to the ground in the event that they um, become uh, even stronger in their negative influence. And The next thing you want to do is engage your decision makers. So before selecting the tools you use to engage decision makers in your campaign, you want to think through a series of questions. And um, some of these questions could be, you know, where do the decision makers get their information? You know, do they get it from newspapers? Do they get it from the Internet, social media? What format do they like to get their information? What do they need to know about the issue? What do you want them to do for you? What's the best way to ask them? What type of engagement would be most meaningful or most motivational? And then what will offer the most effective means through which to persuade a decision maker? And you take all of that into account because that's going to impact your communications plan as well as your engagement plan. So, some of the common tools to engage decision makers um, policy papers and briefings, personal meetings, public meetings, community meetings, public rallies, petitions and letter writing campaigns, email campaigns, informal websites, I'm sorry, informational websites, blogging and tweeting, community radio, local news programs television debates and roundtable discussions, campaign launch events, network of coalition events, pledge cards or commitment boards. And this is where decision makers publicly sign something or support the campaign or issue. And you know, and this all too depends on the geography and when I say geography, are you trying to, make change at your local community level are you trying to make change at your county level is it some some change you're trying to make at the national level so all of that will influence the channels through which you communicate as well all right so when you look at influencing the decision makers you also need to look at who influences them So the way this diagram is structured, you've got the decision maker on the center, on the inside, and you have all of the people who influence the decision maker. You've got the family, friends, constituents, the media, colleagues and business associates, religious or community leaders, the international community where applicable, it could be the national community, it could be the state community, it could be the county community, Um, donors and supporters, advisors and staff. And you should do this analysis for all the people that you are trying to influence. And those are people who who could make a decision one way or the other on your policy. All right, so, You have to remember, too, you have to build coalitions, and no man is an island. Coalitions allow policy advocacy campaigns to, quote unquote, get bigger, essentially adding more political weight, social capital, media interest, citizen support, money, and other resources to the effort, right? Policy coalitions also help to direct efforts among like-minded organizations and individuals to work collectively on the same agenda rather than on separate agendas so that decision makers are hearing the same requests from multiple sources, right? So, you know, sometimes when we read about different issues in the newspaper, it seems like, A whole bunch of different people from different corners of the world might have a similar opinion. Nine times out of 10 that's a result of building coalitions and there's an agreement already made as to what messages they want to get out there right. All right, so when we look at this diagram we look at influence without a coalition right this is you i mean just imagine you're on a seesaw right this is you and your influence without a coalition you have no weight so you're going to be on the high end of the seesaw right or the teeter tire but if you have influence with a coalition you're going to have much more weight and you're going to really um, increase your chances of pushing through your point so your coalition is going to include opinion leaders it's going to include call co- i'm sorry community leaders community service organization community other community-based organizations yourself right so as the political weight of the coalition gets stronger the likelihood of the success goes up all right. So, when you build your coalition, you want to think of a number of different types of people, and this is going to be different for um, different circumstances, different issue campaigns. It's going to be different based on you know your own networks, but your coalition could include things or people like religious leaders, student organizations, civil society organizations or nonprofits and civic groups, academics and issue experts, business leaders, community leaders, political leaders, community representatives, professional bodies and trade associations and syndicates and trade unions and in this case when we talk about syndicates we're not talking about the mob we're talking about people um, associations that might extend beyond you know your local geography so it could be something that extends you know it could be a network that's a citywide network it could be a statewide network or association it could be a national network so there are a number of questions to consider when you're developing a coalition Um, the first question is who could help raise the coalition's credibility right so you recruit people um, not only based on their credibility but you also want to make sure that these people are with you sometimes people or organizations with high profiles can kind of dominate the coalition so you gotta make sure that you don't let one person or one organization dominate the coalition. Who could help strengthen the coalition's relationships with local communities? Who could help build the coalition's public profile? Who should the coalition's spokespersons be? And this could be more than one person. And ideally, you want to have different spokespersons to reach different um, targets. Um, to make sure that you have as broad-based support as you can. So you want your coalition spokespersons to mirror the stakeholders that you have. Who would help strengthen the coalition's access to and relationship with the decision makers? And who could help strengthen the coalition's overall effectiveness? You want to define a vision and get consensus on the division. And then you wanna lay out the roles and responsibilities within the coalition at the outset. And this might include, you know, developing an MOU, right? And make sure that there's also rules of engagement. You wanna put mechanisms in place for conflict resolution. You wanna create a win-win situation for everybody that's involved because you don't wanna create a situation where, Um, people feel like they have been used and abused by the more powerful people in coalition and they've got nothing out of it. So you wanna make sure that to the extent possible, you create a situation where there is equity and equality and inclusion at all levels, right? You want to use experienced coalition staff, assuming that you do have experienced coalition I mean staff. If you don't have staff, if you don't have experience, don't let that deter you. You learn as you go. Um, you also want to develop a realistic budget for what it is the coalition is trying to achieve. And you want to include in that budget money for all the activities that you see yourself engaging in. And you wanna celebrate your successes and make sure that everybody who helps you, I don't care what it is, if they just lick one stamp, you tell them thank you and you acknowledge them publicly. One of the easiest ways for a coalition to fall apart is to have one person or one organization hog all the credit and the people that help them get to where they are are not acknowledged. All right, so the next thing we wanna look at is power payment and persuasion. So in politics and policy, there are essentially three ways to try to influence people to come away, I mean, to come around to your way of thinking. And these are through power payment and persuasion. And power is basically exerting your authority over another. And sometimes this is by force, right? Payment is to offer material or financial goods in exchange for support. And persuasion is to influence someone to undertake a course of action or to embrace a point of view by means of argument, reasoning, or pleading, right? Money and power are not sustainable. So, in the absence of money and power, and when we're talking about power we're talking about the power of the people to influence right we want to use persuasion right and and when we talk about power of the people in enforcing change or making people to um, change their mind we're talking about you know getting people to get involved in you know actions you know protest, you know, that can be sustained only so long, right? So you want to use a blend of all of these, but persuasion, you know, if you don't have power, you don't have money, persuasion is always the best. Effective persuasion requires a strong skill set. And first of all, you need to know your audience and, you know, what makes them tick, right? What you know what pressure points do you uh, know about, right? Establish credibility and authority. So when you talk about credibility, people can believe in you, right? Um, people believe that you're knowledgeable about the issue. People can trust you to do the right thing. People can trust you to do what you say that you're going to do and the same is true not only for your supporters but the people that you're trying to influence those people in power they need to know that you're credible you know you have to have some credible um uh, you need to be credible with them they don't necessarily have to like you they don't have to agree with you but they do have to know that you are a credible resource they do have to know that you are an authority on the issue. Um, you also need to create commitment and keep it simple. Okay, advocacy campaigns involve not only working with decision makers, but also mobilizing and engaging with citizen audiences. You know, these are considered our various target audiences, and the target audiences are demographic or geographic. Uh, geographic group. So when we talk about demographics, we're talking about um, people that fit a certain profile in terms of age, in terms of race, in terms of socioeconomic background, or geographic, you know, where are they located? Is it a community? Is it a state? Etc. So these are audiences that are affected by the issue that your campaign is trying to address. These are groups that will be affected by the change you're trying to bring about, or groups that may not have a direct link to the issue, but their involvement is crucial to the campaign's success because they bring resources, they have valuable political clout, or their participation will increase the campaign's profile. All right, I'm sorry about that. So this chart, again, if you're a member of the nonprofit Utopia community, we have a workbook that will have this chart in there. But uh, effective mobilization is based around the expressed needs or interests of the particular community. It creates community ownership of the issue and the solution. It focuses on processes toward the change and not just events. It generates repeated exposure to the issue or solution. It creates critical mass around an issue or solution and is based on reciprocity, that is give and take. It's not, you know, you give and I take, is I give, you give, I take some of what you have, you take some of what I have, right? That is what makes campaigns effective in the interest of time. I'm not gonna go through all of this detail, but if you are a member of the nonprofit Utopia community, there is a workbook in the in the community that you can use that will have all of this in there. So when we identify our target audiences, you might wanna ask, you know, who's affected by the issue? and who needs change and may likely work for it, right? So that's who you would think about in terms of the citizenry. You know, people who live in a community, people who work in the community, your allies. These are people who are not directly involved or affected by the issue, but they carry the political or social power to make a big difference in the success of the campaign. You know, are there any such allies or potential allies who are involved in the issue now? And who are the effective potential allies? Who are the people who disagree with you, right? Who's invested in the status quo, remaining status quo, right? And they're gonna work actively against you to keep it. And how do you neutralize that position? You don't wanna neutralize the person But you want to neutralize the position and who will perceive this campaign and the proposed policy as a threat. All right, so here is an example of how you can do that analysis, you can do a chart such as this Um, in one column, you can have the audience. Um, Column two, does this audience have a high, medium or low level of knowledge about the issue. Column three, what are the audience's beliefs and attitudes about the issue likely to be? And in this situation, what is most important to this audience? Is this audience likely to support or oppose the campaign? And what is the advocacy tool this audience is likely to respond to? and when you engage your target audiences you need to have a solid understanding of where or how they're already gathering as a community and then you need to go to them right go to where they gather and also understand how they get their information and meet them on those different platforms where they're getting their information all right so physically Where do they gather? Do they gather at the local restaurant, uh, at the library or whatever? Um, Where are they most reachable? Where do they get their information? Do they get their information off social media? Um, Do they get their information from flyers, from newspapers, from the television? What sources of information do they trust most? You know, are they liberal? Are they conservative? Um, What liberal or conservative newspapers might they read? And how do you make sure that you can get your story in those newspapers? What is the general interest of each target audience? And how do they spend their time? For those organizations that have deep pockets, you might consider um, creating a political action committee, that way you can get access to political files, you know, voter registration rolls that will include, you know, things like how many times the person has voted. It will also give you some insights into their hobbies and how they spend their time. And then you can target your messages accordingly. All right. Can your campaign engage them in these different situations. And when we talk about making the ask, you have to make sure that you're really uh, engaging people at the individual level, right? Asking people to get involved, to take leadership, to give input, and to guide the campaign. But before you can ask them to get involved, you need to clearly define what it is that you're asking them to do. You know, all too often. We're asking people, oh, get involved, get involved, get involved, but we don't give them a clear CTA or, and when I say CTA, a clear call to action. So some examples are things like signing a petition, joining a committee, becoming a community leader who will actively promote this campaign, um, asking people to knock on doors in their neighborhood to talk about the issue or have people sign a petition, Um, speaking out in public on the issue, doing a video to talk about the issue, going on Facebook Live to talk about the issue, organizing an event, writing a letter, giving money, recruiting other supporters, donating your skills in terms of managing a Facebook group, You know, all of those things that can be done, but you need to be specific in in what you're asking for, not just signing up for our campaign. All right. So what you ask people to do has has to strike a fine balance between what's realistically possible for them, what they can control. And what will make a difference in their lives, right? Their lives, not your coalition's lives. What their aspirations are, you know, what it is they're trying to achieve for their own lives or the lives of those that they care about. All right. So things that they can control are those things that can make a difference, right? Things that they're doing right about now. And then what is possible is what they aspire to. It's not about your coalition controlling them. And it's not about what you want for them. It's about what they want for themselves. And here we're looking at creating participation. And if you want to be effective in your mobilization, you're going to need to find out how you can create repeated opportunities for the community. You know, everybody can't get involved in every activity but you want to create as many activities as possible and create as many times for them to get engaged as possible so you want to get members to get interested and get involved in an initiative and you also want to make sure that you can encourage them to take leadership so it's not just um, the organization or the coalition doing things you want people in the community to actually own this and take control, right? Your coalition is there to guide, but you want the community to take control of the issue. And then you wanna encourage them, right? At every point, every point and then you want to expand their involvement over time. So if you look at this, uh, You might start with them uh, volunteering at an event, right? Get them to sign a petition, get them interested. Um, You wanna help them to increase awareness. Then you wanna get them to host an event and get them to recruit others and continue this cycle. All right, so here we're gonna talk about communication and mobilization tools for building grassroots support around your advocacy. All right, so you can use peer educators or peer leaders, community action initiatives, personal action campaigns. You can develop a wall of commitment where you have names of people who have signed on to your campaign, right? You can have storytelling or testimonials from people who are impacted by the campaign. In a positive way, people tell their stories so that they can bring others who are like themselves to join the campaign. You can have SMS campaigns, that is um, text messages. Um, Send those out just like you do an email blast. You can do social media campaigns. You can have informational hotlines. You can do community classes on various issues and various techniques to address the issues. Um, You can have teach-ins. You can meet with your public officials. You can have town hall meetings. You can do demonstrations and press conferences and the list goes on and on and on. And the thing is you wanna make sure These are activities where they're leading, and when I say they're, I'm talking about people in the community who are impacted. They're leading and have strong say-so as to how you're going to proceed. And in advocacy, effective communication is about using the right words to create an image in the minds of your audiences about what the change will look like, right? That you're talking about what the change. Um, you're proposing is going to do for them, how they're connected to this change, because sometimes people don't necessarily see how the policy is going to impact them or even why they should be involved, and then what it is that you want them to do. And then you also want to look at people's personal interests and their values, because you're not going to Keep people around for the long haul if you don't understand what it is that drives them. So, when we talk about personal interest, we're talking about things like safety, security, health, financial stability, or general wellness of the individual or those that they care about. So we're talking about basic needs. Those of you who might be um, familiar with mass <coughs> with with the Basic hierarchy of needs, you want to make sure that you can address those for the people that you're asking to get involved in, right? And if you don't have the money personally, and most advocacy groups don't have the money personally, you need to have some way um, to make sure that you can help them meet those needs and you have to make sure that your policy that you're asking them to get involved in can help meet those change, those needs, I'm sorry. So advocacy campaigns often try to connect their issues to what's important and relevant to the personal lives of their target audiences and what they personally get out of responding to the issues at hand. And for the values, most recently campaigners are, mobilizing populations to action have asked target audiences to think through their values. What's the most important or sacred thing in their lives? The idea is to appeal to issues and ideals that are bigger than just them to create more sustainable change and lasting action among target audiences and the values on which campaigns focus on must be seen as relevant to them and important to the audience in order to influence their behavior, their attitudes and keep them engaged. So here is a policy communication framework. Um, On one column, we have the problem and then you would uh, write one or two sentences defining the problem or describing the problem so for example one problem could be the reason for bringing the problem forward right Um, i'm sorry um i misinterpret this this column is (laughs) this is a worksheet the problem the first thing is the problem you want to write one or two sentences that define the problem um, the second thing is the reason for bringing the problem forward. You want to explain why the problem is a problem and why, you know, your rationale for bringing it forward. And then you want to talk about the symptoms. You know, how does the problem manifest itself and how the target audiences are affected? And then you want to elaborate on the symptoms. And for every symptom that you list, explain what's happening and the impact of the symptoms, you know, and tell why it matters. And then you want to talk about the context, you know, what's going on in the community? What's the history of the problem? What are the trends that contributed to the problem? Are there other geographies, you know, other communities that are facing the same problem? Are there other states, other cities that are facing the same problem? And then you want to talk about the desired change or the outcome. You know, what is it that you want to see change um, as a result of this advocacy? And then you want to talk about the benefits for implementing this change. And then you want to talk about other policy alternatives and you want to recommend a specific course of action. You know, what exactly should happen? What policies or other alternatives did you consider? And you decide it against, you know, why is this the best course of action? What do you want target audiences and decision makers to do? And then you want to describe your recommendations framed as a solution to the problem. And to the extent possible, this is not something one person should be doing. This exercise should be done, you know, as a brainstorm from the group. If not through a brainstorm in a large group, then you might consider doing a survey. You wanna be able to make sure that, you know, this is not just one person framing the issues. And then we wanna look at the features versus benefits. And sometimes we have a tendency to get those confused. All right, so, we have a tendency to focus on what a program or policy contains, which is its features rather than what it can do, which is, you know, the benefits, right, the impact that it's gonna have. But what target audiences and decision makers generally need to know is what they're gonna get out of a policy or program or what's the benefit. Again, we tend to talk about what it is that we do know what activities we're engaged in rather than what's in it for the people that we're trying to help and the people that we're trying to get engaged in solving the problem all right so we want to talk about the power of storytelling in advocacy a good story enables a leap in understanding by the target audience so that they can more easily grasp the problem and what the proposed solution would look like in practice. The story is short and it's no longer than two minutes. And the impact is not through transferring large amounts of information, but by helping the audience to understand the issues at stake and understand faster. And the story has to be true, right? No lying up there, right? Stories can come from research or from experience on the issue, and it can include at least one statistic that validates the key point. So for example, now this um, example is an international example, but it is a good example that can be applied wherever you are. Zainab was nine when her mother married her second husband. Her father died when Zainab was just three years old, so at first she really liked having a new father. Then he started picking on her. He got angrier and started hitting her when she was just 14 years old. Her mother tried to stop him, but he was too strong. They wanted to leave, but there was no money and nowhere to go. Zainab knew she needed help, She reached out to our children's rights advocacy group, and we were able to help get Zainab and her mother into a better situation. One out of every 12 children in our society is having a childhood like Zainab's, filled with violence and abuse. We're a small charity doing what we can do to help, but this is a bigger problem. As a society, we should be standing against this and. For full funding of a Department of Children's Welfare and specialized training for our police and judiciary in how to intervene to protect children, our most vulnerable citizens. You notice the elements there. They identified a problem, Um, they gave it a human interest, they showed how it was important not only to Zainab and her family, but how this is a problem that impacts a whole bunch of other people, right? And we should all care about it. They also made a linkage to public policy. They made a linkage as to why it's important to continue to fund this organization so that they could do this work. They also provided statistics. They made sure that it was a true story. And they highlighted the benefits, all of that within two paragraphs, which I think is pretty remarkable. So the next thing we want to talk about is creating a message box. A message box is a communication tool in which all the language surrounding a particular issue, a policy proposal, is placed into a single framework and a campaign manage- message is extracted. First thing you want to talk about is the benefits. What are the benefits to responding to this issue or implementing the campaign's proposed policy alternative? And again, you want to review your answers in the features versus benefit framework for ideas. You want to then look at the challenges. What are the challenges to implementing the campaign's objectives? What language do people use to oppose the campaign or undermine the issue? And is there language that the campaign could use that could put people at ease in the face of these challenges? And then we want to talk about the dominant values and needs. We want to talk about the values and needs that can impact our judgment and our behavior, what values and norms dominate in the target audience or around this issue. You want to ask, <clears throat> what is the strongest needs among the target or audience, and how can you connect your campaign's issues to those values and needs that predominate in the community? And then finally, want to look at action and control. Your message has to include a call to action, a clear request letting the target audience know exactly what you want them to do on the issue. The action that you ask them to take has to be easily accessible, and it also has to feel like it will make a difference, that the people have some degree of control over their ability to respond to the issue. So here's an example of a message box. This comes from a coalition of small businesses community leaders and civil society organizations trying to create an enterprise zone in their area some local residents are wary of the impact that the enterprise zone might have and several trade union leaders have spoken out in opposition to the move as the wrong place to be investing resources so i'm going to make this a little larger so you can see it all right so they looked at the benefits the benefits are the enterprise zone will help local benefit uh, local businesses grow and will create hundreds of new jobs for local residents those of you in chicago will be familiar with this language we hear it all the time when they talk about TIFFs. Um, Some of the challenges, enterprise zones are expensive and some opponents argue that they lead to job displacement rather than job creation. The environmental impact is also a concern. Then we look at the dominant values and needs. Our community values families. Parents worry about children, children having to leave the country to find work. Parents worry about children having to leave the community to find work. It's dangerous out there. And then we look at accident control. Come to our open day and get involved. We need more jobs in this area, and we need your support to bring them here. Tell the governor that our families need economic development and growth. All right, so all of that can be condensed into this message. Local jobs mean our children can stay. We all benefit when we invest in jobs. All right. The next thing we wanna look at is is communication channels and communication channels are basically um, you're deciding where people will hear the message. Remember, we talked about, you know, your target audience. We talked about how they'd like to receive their information, where in this point, we're going to talk about how you can talk, um, actually reach them through places that they normally communicate, right? So once you develop your message, you have to think about how they're going to receive the message. What are the respected and locally relevant channels of communication in the areas that you're targeting? How do people get their information? What are the demographics? You know, how old are they? What are their race? What's their gender? Who are their peers? How can their peer groups be influential? Have you identified any community leaders as potential partners in this communication strategy, and can they help take on the role of messenger? Do the advocacy tools that you identified earlier conform with the manners in which people in this area get their information and what might you need to change? So for example, if you are thinking about communicating through the newspapers and you're trying to reach 16 and 17 year olds, that might not necessarily be the best place to reach 16 and 17 year olds. They're more likely to be engaged on social media, such as TikTok, right? But if you're trying to engage their parents, um, you might consider a newspaper. But again, you need to figure out where their parents get the information. All right. So there you have it. We have completed our conversation on developing effective policy advocacy campaigns. If you have any questions, any comments, please feel free to share them. All right, um, if there are no, if there are no comments or um, questions, I wanna say thank you again. I realized that we were on much longer then normally, this has been a very long um, series, but I thought it was really important for you to understand how to develop these campaigns, um, help you understand the steps that go into developing an effective campaign. All too often, we see that there's a problem, we call a community meeting, and we end it there, all right? So as you can see, there's a whole lot to effective policy advocacy that meets the eye. So without further ado, I want to say thank you so much for joining me today. Um, If you can, uh, make sure that you join us tomorrow. We're going to do a deeper dive into the census. We're going to be showing you some very practical examples of how you can use the census data for your own purposes. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about using census data to describe your target area. All right. So without further ado, I will see you tomorrow at 10 o'clock. And again, thank you so much for joining me. Take care. Bye-bye.